University of Georgia Griffin campus invites you to join us for news and information about the many and varied programs and activities at the UGA Griffin campus. Information about gardening, the agriculture programs, and your UGA degree at the University of Georgia Griffin campus. Your UGA degree is closer than you think. This program is made possible by Frank and Karen Harris of Round Oak Resources Tree Farm and Murray and Company Realtors. Listen each Thursday at 9 o'clock a.m. for the UGA Griffin Campus News. This program is produced by WKU AM 1450 and 102.3 FM and The Rock 88.9 FM and streamed live on our website, wkuradio.com. Join us now with our guests from the UGA Griffin Campus. And good morning and welcome to this week's installment of the University of Georgia Griffin Campus News. We are being joined remotely this week by Bob Westerfield, the University of Georgia Extension Horticulturalist working out of the Cowart Building on the Griffin Campus. Bob, always a pleasure to have you back on the program, sir. Well, good morning, Tony. It's always a fun thing to do, and I'm, I'm glad I'm back again. Well, we've got a lot to cover today because of um, the weather has really dominated things here over the past couple of days. The Griffin area had, through just Monday and Tuesday, saw in excess of four inches of rain. Other areas have seen a little bit less, and in some areas, like around Columbus, where our range does extend, saw almost seven inches. How does that impact how we're going to treat our gardens right now? Well, you know, we, we were kind of in this pattern all summer long where we just had tremendous rainfall. And, in fact, even on our trial gardens, we have not had to water that much. And then all of a sudden we got to this dry period here a couple of weeks ago, and it was, like, you know, extremely dry. And it's like they're encouraging people, hey, you're probably going to have to start watering the end of your summer garden or certainly if you planted a fall garden, uh, begin to irrigate it. And then, boom, we got hit again. And it looks like we're not done yet. Like you said, we've, we've gotten several inches in many locations um, it, it's extremely wet, and I think the biggest impact is not a lot you can do about it, but certainly if you have not done any planting yet, um, you do not want to get in that garden when it's wet like this. The soils are saturated. If you're in there running a tiller or you got a shovel going or you're even stepping in it, it's going to compact it. Uh, being so wet like this, all those soil particles are going to kind of squeeze together, and that's not a good condition for, for vegetables, for ornamentals, for anything. So I think you're really going to have to let it dry out several days. You know, just looking at the forecast, it looks like we may be in for this uh, again tomorrow, maybe a little bit on Friday. So it's going to probably be, you know, if it, if it tapers off and stops, it's going to probably be early next week before folks can really get in the garden safely, you know, without worrying about compaction. Well, now for people like me who see all this rain and think, well, it, you know, I guess my garden doesn't really need a whole lot. When would be a good time to start checking or really monitoring closely the moisture level within our garden? And, and you know, is it a day long? Is it a day by day situation? Or can we wait a week with all this rain to maybe think about not watering? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and, it, and, and it's kind of get answered with the it depends type of answer. Um, it kind of depends a little bit on what type of soil you have. Certainly, the more clay that you have in your in your garden, the more the water retention is going to be. Uh, here at the farm, um, you know, where my where I live, we actually have fairly kind of sandy, loamy soils. It actually drains much faster. But that being said, with all the rain we have had, I'm, I'm thinking most soil conditions, most soil types, could probably go a week without any supplemental irrigation. Um, it is something that you kind of want to watch day by day. If folks are growing in raised beds, 
um, which is a great way to grow vegetables and ornamentals uh, like flowers and stuff. But at the end of the day, they do drain very quickly. And even after heavy rainfall, you know, within a day or two, you might need to irrigate again. So you do have to watch the plants. What I suggest doing is taking your, your hand, your fingers, and kind of poking it down into the soil, into the garden, and kind of feel down there. If it feels, you know, a little bit moist, that's perfect. I think if you did it right now, it's going to feel a lot of bit moist. But, you know, if you're kind of wondering, hey, I wonder if it's too dry now in the garden, kind of feel down there. If it's powder dry, which, you know, obviously is not going to be now, but a couple of days from now it might be, depending on the soil type, then it's time to irrigate. So it's a very much a um, kind of wait and see and, and have to monitor garden by garden situation. But with the amount of rainfall we've had here, I'm sure everyone's going to be safe at least for several days. Are there vegetables in our garden that uh, are more susceptible to this amount of rainfall? I mean, something like tomatoes that are largely water-based can get waterlogged in a hurry. But are there other vegetables that we might need to keep an eye on? Yeah, um, you know, some of the real tender vegetables that particularly start out on the tender side, and I'm thinking specifically right now of the fall garden, is lettuce. You know, lettuce, we can usually direct seed it. It's very tiny seed. It comes up as, you know, minuscule little tiny plants that are very um, succulent, very fleshy. And, you know, they don't, even in their maturity when they're ready to be harvested, uh, they're, they're not a whole lot holding them together, to be honest with you. So things like... Um, Certainly leaf lettuce, maybe Swiss chard, which is a little bit flimsy. Um, those things right there could be impacted by the rain and literally um, suffer damage, you know, from the heavy downpours. And then on the other side of that equation, you had mentioned tomatoes. And, and some folks, you know, we're kind of done with the, with tomatoes here, but they're, they're still out there in the garden. All this heavy rain, you know, splashing up on the leaves and so forth, that can certainly lead to disease issues, you know, as some of that, that water and soil gets deposited on the stem and the leaves. So that's something to watch out for. But, you know, the more hardy vegetables, when I say hardy, I mean structurally, probably like, um, you know, broccoli in, in the fall garden, maybe Brussels sprouts, they probably have a stronger stem base that they could withstand most rains. But, you know, wind, too, if we get a lot of wind in, you have to kind of watch that, particularly on the taller type vegetables. Well, you stole my question about diseases and fungus developing because of all this rain. How about the pest population? I mean, they're, they're having to stay inside, too. They don't necessarily want to be out in the rain. Once that comes to an end, is that something we need to keep an eye on for at least a few days? Right, and that is something you want to be cognizant of. Um, you know, when we get a lot of rain in, it does two things. It, it does sort of slow down the bad guys from going out and feeding so they're probably hundering under they're, they're kind of hunkered down under foliage and leaves kind of waiting for the rain to stop but on the other side it also slows down our beneficial insects including pollinators you know when you get heavy rain like that it does a couple of things it, it, it keeps the pollinators from flying around also knocks the pollen out of the bloom sometimes which makes it difficult for a a plant to pollinate and, and many of our vegetables are insect pollinated and, and so in order to have, you know, a successful fruiting or vegetable formation, you've got to have that insect movement. So, yeah, the rain can play havoc on that, uh, both good and bad. And so once we get into hopefully a normal pattern, things will clear up. But it's certainly something folks are going to want to watch out for. This time of the year, you know, we're sort of we're, we're transitioning. Um, we still have a lot of the summer pests around. If you're still harvesting okra, um, you know, we talked about tomatoes, peppers. Certainly a lot of the summer insects are still out, and some of them are, are, are quite um, in profusion right now. That We've got the, you know, the peak of, of, of insect activity, 
And then now we're looking at some of the, the fall garden pests when it comes to the vegetable garden. Um, some of the loopers, caterpillar-type insects, and certainly aphids are, are sort of a year-round uh, problem. You want to keep an eye on that, particularly, like you said, after heavy rainfalls, it might be sort of a, uh, um, a free-for-all, you know, try to get onto the vegetables as soon as you can. Are there different ways to treat what we term as fall pests as opposed to our summer insects? I would say overall fall pests treatments probably a little bit more lenient um you don't quite have the the number of insects that potentially would come during the warm season vegetables we certainly have a long list of what can get you out there but we start to taper down a little bit um on the active in insect activity particularly the bad guys when it, but that doesn't mean they they can't hurt you um there's certainly we mentioned some of the loopers and caterpillars and other type insects that, you know, if you get a bad invasion of them, they, they can take you out as quickly as some of the summer pests. So it's, it's a different type of pest normally um, because we do deal with quite a bit of caterpillar type pests. Um, you know, the controls might be slightly different, certainly from an organic side. Um, this is where the chemicals, sometimes people have heard of BT, uh, it's Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a, it's a popular organic insecticide that's actually very effective on lepidoptera and lepidoptera basically is a fancy name for the caterpillars so anything most anything in the caterpillar range of control should be taken care of by the bt and some of the over the garden uh, i'm sorry over the counter type synthetic insecticides like bifenprin the seven that people have used you know when they're not growing organically most of those controls could be universal and, and continue to control the winter pests. Well, for those of us with zero background in the entomological world, are there? can you give us a couple of tips of what to look for, for if we see an insect that we might not be familiar with that we could identify just based on your description as harmful to our garden? Yeah, right. It, and most times, at least in my experience, a lot of people don't see the insect first. They see the damage. And so what I would be looking for as you're going through your, um, your winter garden, or even if it's late, you know, late summer garden, um, pay attention to the color of the leaves and the fruit. Certainly obvious would be blemishes, holes in the leaves, you know, from chewing insects. Um, but less obvious sometimes is modeling, which would basically be like discoloration of the fruit or the leaves where it just doesn't look right. It's not as green as it used to be. Why is it kind of turning yellow here and there? Um, and then look at the undersides of the leaves. Many of these insects, you know, like us, kind of want to get out of the rain, be protected from the sunlight, so they're going to feed on the undersides of the leaves. And you could walk by them all day long and never know they're there unless you flip the leaves over. So kind of do some scouting um, doing that. And that is not a bad idea. A lot of our um, troublesome insects can be active in the evening time, particularly the loopers. So go out in the garden at night with a flashlight and kind of look into things. Certainly the, um, you know, the, the loopers, the, the caterpillars that are feeding on our winter vegetables, those are sneaky little guys. And, and the adult moth will lay eggs uh, on or near the plant, and those larvae will hatch, and they'll tunnel their way into the plant. So I've grown, like, Chinese cabbage before and other type things, broccoli, and you almost don't know they're in there until you start harvesting, and then when you open up the plant, there's all these tunnels in there. So really pull some of the leaves back, look inside to see if you see... Normally what you're going to see is you might see holes or you're going to see some real green slimy deposits, which basically is the excrement of mostly green material from, from, the, from when the loopers are feeding. And when you see that, then you know, hey, it's, it, it's probably time I need to spray. 
And when you spray, you have to be thorough. You really need to saturate that plant to where the insecticide can kind of make it down into all the little nooks and crannies. And well, you, you, we seem to be on the same page today because my next question was going to be, it's not that long until we make the change from daylight time to back to standard time. I think that happens at the 1st of November, so we're just a few weeks Correct. away. Does it get more difficult pest control? Are there new species that come out that favor the darkness as opposed to light that we need to be aware of? I mean, aside Absolutely. from the caterpillars? Right. Um, yeah, I th you know, again, I mentioned aphids. Aphids are just tenacious. And I don't think the cold kills them. Um, I think they can just be, and aphids are, if you're unfamiliar, really small pests. They are visible. They usually um, are in quantity or profusion. There's a gazillion of them when you see them. Uh, they're very fast to, to, um, to repopulate, and they'll be up and down the stems. They'll be on the back of the leaves. They can be everywhere. A lot of the summer pests that we've been seeing all year long, like the, the leaf-footed bugs, the stink bugs, and things like that, most of them are about to cycle out. What they're going to be doing is laying eggs. Um, in some cases, some of the uh, moth-type insects will be going into cocoons, basically. Okay, the larva will and they're going to be overwintering. So that is a good point that you make on this question. Um, any trash that you can eliminate out of the garden, and trash being old summer plants that are no longer producing, lots of tall grass and debris, I would mow that down, till that in, kind of eliminate it, because that's going to sort of be like the hotel for the winter for most of the summer pests. The, as we're cooling off now, as we're cooling off, many of the winter pests we talked about are, are beginning to uh, become active. There's a number of, like we said, caterpillars, moths, slugs and snails can still be active throughout the cool weather, so it's just something you're really going to have to watch for. Fortunately, like I said the list is shorter on the winter pests. Uh, we, we certainly have some diseases, too, that can, that can occur in the cool weather, but it's, for me, the winter garden is not something you want to spray just routinely, but you want to keep an eye on your vegetables. And the first sign of damage, you know, you have to sort of assess it and say, hey, is this one plant or is this little bug atta attacking most of my plants? And now we need to select a, um, you know, a control. The county extension agents are a good source. You know, if you're unsure what you have, bring the insect into your local county office. Most times they'll either be able to identify it on the spot or nowadays, you know, with cell phones and pictures and cameras, uh, they'll send it to the appropriate specialist and they'll be able to normally identify it very quickly and, and give a control. Well, at the beginning of the program in your monologue to start today, we you talked about the planting ornamentals in raised beds. Is this the time of the season to be looking towards our fall and perhaps even our winter ornamentals? And how is that going to work out in terms of timing? Yeah, it's, it's certainly um, a transitional time right now. You know, we're, we're just in the beginning of October. And in Georgia, we know how that goes. I mean, it sounds good. You're thinking, oh, good, we finally made it to the fall. But yet we're still going to hit the 80s. You know, it's going to be 80 degrees. We're slowly beginning to hit, you know, the 50s and 60s at night. But this is a transitional time when a lot of the summertime flowers and shrubs are beginning to shut down. Um, it's a transition where they're going to go into dormancy. In some cases, the top of those plants is going to stop actively per se feeding and growing and now all the energy is going to go down to the bottom of the plant into the root system so the root system of our summer plants if you will or even if they're perennial 
um, the ones that shut down for dormancy, are going to continue to grow, but that root system is now going to be the focus. That being said, our soils are beginning to cool a little bit. The air temperature is cooling a little bit, and this is a good time now to be thinking about any additional plantings that you want to make, whether it be an ornamental that you want to plant, that even if it flowers in the summer, fall is the best time to plant that. There are annuals that you can plant starting right now. Um, you know, the most common one everyone thinks of are pansies. It's certainly okay to plant pansies now. Chrysanthemums is another great one that works good either in beds or in containers. Um, snapdragons is just another one that comes to mind. So there, there are plenty of little annuals and some perennials that we can kind of put into the garden now to continue some of that color that we saw all um, summer long. Now, what about shrubs? A lot of people like to plant in the fall. Is this the time to do it, or are we better served waiting till the right before spring emerges? Right. Uh, we, well, yeah, um, you know, fall is the ideal time to plant, and I'll explain why. And really, it seems like most people, the, the biggest surge to plant is in the springtime, and that's there's a number of reasons. In, in the spring, everyone kind of, you know, has been tired of the cold weather and the dormancy and I guess it's called spring fever, but you see these trucks, you know, just bringing all these ornamentals into the into the garden centers and the nurseries, and people think, oh, it's it's time to plant. I need to get out there and get my ornamentals planted. And really, that's not the best time to plant in the spring because when you're putting that plant in the ground, although it starts off pretty well, the hot temperatures we know in Georgia usually arrive pretty quickly, most cases as early as May, and that's very stressful for particularly for a newly planted shrub that has not yet, you know, um, amassed a good root system. Planting it now, and we talked about this a second ago, all the focus now on most ornamental plants, if you put them in the landscape now, is not going to be on the top growth, but it's going to be on the root growth. And that's really what you want to do to get good establishment. We want to focus on the root system taking off, spreading by planting it properly, and, and allowing it to really get a good foothold before we get into the hotter temperatures. In Georgia, really, you know, with the climate we have, I would say the heat is certainly more stressful to our ornamentals than the cold ever is. Do you, are you a proponent of adding soil amendments to the planting holes for our shrubs? Um, in general, I would answer that is no. If you were Digging an individual hole, let's just say, for example, you're going to plant some azaleas. Um, you dig a planting hole. We always recommend digging a hole at least twice the size of the root ball. That allows those roots to kind of expand and spread out. But you don't want to take, like, potting soil or some type of nature's helper, you know, amendment and put it right in that planting hole. And the reason is you're, you're changing that soil um, structure and density and porosity so dramatically as opposed to the ground next to it that it can give you problems. It can actually act like a sponge and then we have times like we have now where we get a lot of rain, that rain will just pool up in there because that soil is so attractive to the moisture. What I would rather see is if you're going to dig individual planting holes for your shrubs, dig the hole twice as big as the root ball plant the shrub level with the top of the root ball and the existing soil, and then just kind of break up the clusters, pull out the rocks, and use the existing soil that came out of that hole to backfill with. Now, here seems like a contrast, but it's not. Or I do like soil amendments, but I want to see the soil amendments 
tilled or worked into the soil around the entire bed. So certainly if I'm doing a bed of annuals or I'm going to plant, say, a mass planting of several ornamental shrubs, putting three or four inches of good organic topsoil or amendment and then working that into the native soil so it's very uniform is an excellent way to go. And I'm hoping you see the difference there. Yeah. We're mixing it into the entire, entire area versus putting it almost like in a swimming pool scenario to where it's going to suck in a bunch of water. Well, you know, every plant has its own toughness, shrubs too. What are some of the more hardy shrubs that can best withstand a Georgia winter? So, you know, a lot of our um, shrubs, like I said, as long as you um, select carefully, and that comes into the term cold, when we're talking winter, we're talking about cold hardiness. And, and, and cold hardiness basically is, is how many degrees below freezing, 32 degrees, uh, in, in a simplistic way, do we actually have per year? And that's what's, you know, denoted as cold hardiness. The entire country, and maybe the world for that matter, is, are set up in cold hardiness zones. And that has changed just a little bit as we've got more accurate data. Uh, for the most part now, we used to be in Zone 7B. We're in Zone 8 now. Um, that being said, you know, if you're looking at selecting plants that are from, say, Zone 9 and 10, and you got to realize the higher the number of the zone, the warmer the climate. So Zone 9 and 10, you can only imagine, are probably like South Florida, maybe Louisiana, those areas. If you're putting plants from that zone into your landscape, they're going to suffer. Um, something that comes to mind that's kind of a marginal plant is something like Pittosporum, which is a popular shrub. It barely makes it here. If you try to squeeze it in, it may get cold damage. It does fine in South Georgia. On the other end of the, of the candle is something like a rhododendron. People love rhododendrons. They're in the Isaiah family. It's the other side. It really likes the cool weather. It would survive every little bit of cold we ever threw at it. It grows all the way up to Canada. But when you start growing it around the Griffins, middle Georgia area, a lot of times it suffers in our sun. So I think the key to the, or the, the answer to this question is making sure you're selecting plants that are hardy for our area. If you don't know, we've, we've got plenty of good information online, or you can ask the county agent, hey, does this grow where we are? Certainly most of the hollies that are out there, when you look at, you know, the very popular hollies, you've got the Chinese Cronada hollies. You've got the larger leaf hollies. Some people are familiar with Burford holly, Nellie R. Stevens holly. Most of them have fairly dark, very hard, plasticky-like leaves. Oftentimes they bury very well. They've got a nice little Christmas berry ornament-type um, fruit. Most of those are going to be extremely hardy for any of our winters. Um, in general, any of the real woody-type shrubs that you can think of, ligustrum, and sometimes uh, you know a lot of folks will plant uh, things such as tea olive, which is off Mansus fragrance, a real fragrant plant. All of those are going to do quite fine in our winter landscapes. The most I normally see damage-wise is going to occur, you know, we may get a late frost in after the things that we begin to sprout out in the spring, and sometimes you get a little dieback, but rarely does it. It's, it's a rare day that it would actually kill the plant. Well, when you mentioned the, the cold weather zones, and you you pointed out that if it carries a rating of 9 or 10, then it's probably not a good idea for a little more different climate than what we have here. Not by a lot, but by enough to damage the plant. Does that rating system work in reverse? If it has a cold rating of 4 or 5, can it thrive here? Or do we need to stick to plants that are, are a little more indigenous or at least grow, seem to grow well here in Georgia? 
Um, yes, good question. Um, you're right. The, the zones basically um, are going to go, uh, I'm thinking now, I think it's like zone 1 through 10 or something like that. 10 going to be the, the hottest climate. Okay, and I might have that wrong. I might go to 11. I can't remember. But in any event, the higher the number, the hotter the area. And, and certainly when you start hitting zones like, you know, 4 and 3 and 2, um, you're upwards of like Philadelphia, New York, up into Canada. And there are certainly plants there, and I see this all the time. Um, you know, people, particularly they'll buy like a live Christmas tree, for example, and we're certainly getting close to that time now. And they may grow, they may buy something like a Douglas fir or a Scotch pine, and they say, man, I love this tree. It's going to be my Christmas tree. I bought it, I, I bought it as a bagged and burlap, and now I'm going to plant it in the landscape. And they do that, and maybe the first year it survives, and the next year they start calling the county offices saying, hey, my tree's kind of turning brown. Well, that's because you've got a tree that was essentially grown in Canada or New York or Pennsylvania or something like that that was shipped down here, and it just it does not acclimate to our hot temperatures. You know, you think of the hemlock tree. People love how That's one of my favorite trees, but you better not try to grow that here. It's, it's going to be very difficult. North Georgia, cooler climates in around creek bottoms, yeah, it'll probably do okay, but not here. So you have to be real careful on both sides of the equation. Um, I would say for, you know, the middle Georgia area, you want to stick with plants that are probably rated no warmer than zone 9 and preferably staying in zone 8 and maybe no cooler than zone 7. Otherwise, it's going to be a chore to keep them alive. Well, we've broached the topic of shrubs, and one of the things that you are, I consider you a true master at, is pruning. Is that something that we need to engage in at this point in the year? You know, pruning is always an important topic. Um, it is something that we kind of want to try to hold our horses on. It, it is something that we're going to, in, in most cases, be doing later in the winter. Normally, I suggest late January, February for most of the pruning. Now, let me make an exception. Certainly, if you've got something that has died back or you have dead material in right now, go ahead and remove the dead material from the plant. It's certainly not doing any good. And it could be, you know, it could actually be a, a burden as, as if it attracts disease and insects. So dead material should be really pruned out at any time of the year to get that out of the site. But for the most part, we're going to hold off major ornamental pruning until we hit the cooler temperatures. And just as a quick reminder, I know we talked about pruning before on the program, but if it's an early blooming plant, such as we already mentioned, azaleas, rhododendron, so if it blooms real early in the spring, you want to wait till it blooms because that stuff is actually blooming on last year's wood. So wait till after it blooms and then prune it if it needs pruning. Pretty much everything else that might need pruning, you can do as a winter pruning, January, February, and you should stay out of trouble. Does that lead to healthier production for the plants in the spring because there is not as much buildup over the winter? Yeah, um, you know, when you're pruning something, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, you need to think, well, good, I'm reducing the size of the plant. It was too big for me. But what you actually are doing is, um, from the plant standpoint, every time you cut, particularly if you cut properly near a bud, a growing point on that stem, that, that um, limb or whatever you're pruning, when you cut it, you're actually triggering that plant for regrowth. So it, it sends a chemical signal. That chemical is a hormone called auxin. And that auction signals that plant that, hey, you know, we just lost a little bit. Let's go out and put new growth outside. And that's why, you know, you, you hear people all the time, um, 
pinching back house plants. Well, why are they pinching them back? They're pinching them back to get a thicker, uh, more growth on their plant. So when we prune something, we're actually going to increase it in size over time. And so many situations, like a crepe myrtle, for instance, you know, particularly when it's young, giving it a, a good haircut, pruning it back a little bit, invigorates it. And I would say that's true on a lot of our shrubs that tend to get very kind of gangly and, and almost overgrown quickly. Um, but do, re, do re, you know, remember that there's a technique to that. You certainly want to don't want to just keep taking like a hedge pruner and going over and over on that plant. You're going to get too much regrowth. Oftentimes that's going to shade the center. So there's, you know, there's a way to do that properly. And most times you want to selectively remove branches within that plant to allow maximum sunlight, to allow good regrowth, but not overgrowth. Well, I think you just hit on another key word in your answer, the word color. And people associate fall with the changing of the colors on the trees and shrubs. What triggers that? And, you know, how long is it going to be before we're at the peak of the leaf changing season? Yeah, so um, I'm actually starting to see a little bit of, uh, you know, fall color right now. If you're driving around, um, you, you can certainly um, begin to see a little bit of change. Some of the sweet gums are turning a little bit of color. Um, just, just a couple of tidbits on that. Um, what is fall color? Look, we always say that, oh, we can't wait to see the, the leaf color change, and that's almost a little bit inaccurate. The leaf color, I mean, it obviously it's changing. We're seeing the green go away, but that's what's happening. We're actually having the green chlorophyll is going away, and the true colors that are already there are showing themselves. So in actuality, the leaves don't really change to a red, to a yellow. They're that color already. They more or less change to green in the springtime when they come out because they're full of chlorophyll, which is the, the food product of a leaf, if that makes sense. Right. What affects, what affects how pretty and how good a fall color we're going to have are many different things. The condition of the plant, how much rainfall we had during the summertime, uh, certainly if we get into drought situations, temperature. And, you know, I've, I've seen all kind of different predictors of that, and it doesn't always seem to add up. I, I, I have heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I have heard that this year we were going to have some pretty good fall color. I'm hearing that the peak is going to be somewhere around the first week or so for our area of November, and I guess, you know, we will see. Interestingly, uh, I'm actually going on a trip next week to Maine. I'm going to be gone for several weeks up in the Maine, and I have been up there at this time of the year, and their leaves are, like, pretty much done at this time of the year. So if you start driving up the East Coast, certainly the the, the – temperatures and all have a great effect on the leaf color and you know you start getting into north carolina and above there up into virginia and so forth you'll see more and more leaf color eventually you'll get into like the you know the uh, new hampshire area new england and you're in the peak of fall color and then eventually you get a little further now like i said in the main and all of a sudden the leaves are coming off the trees so it, it, it's definitely a progression for us it's going to come down um you know all the way to about south georgia and then leaf color after that most of the leaves actually continue to produce chlorophyll and don't change color if you start getting into some areas of South Georgia and Florida. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I lived in South Georgia, and I really did miss the leaf color change. We didn't see it much. Sometimes the leaves would just fall off the trees and put out new leaves without ever changing color. So, so it's a combination of things, um, the weather, the temperature, perhaps length of day, and also the species of tree that you have in there. There are just some that are more prone to brilliant color than others. Well, when you go to Maine for this week, couple of weeks sojourn, 
Let's not get any ideas about visiting the University of Maine, but you're too vital to our radio operation, so let's just nix that idea right out of the chute. But, you know, we talked about planting shrubs. This is also the, the ideal time of the year to plant trees if we want to, particularly fruit trees to, that would be a little bit more ready to prosper in the spring and then the next year be able to bear some fruit. Yeah, um, you can certainly get away with planting some fruit trees now. And, and and a lot of times on my fruit trees, I hold off a little bit and I wait till very late winter, early spring. So it, almost about the time where you'd be doing a lot of your pruning on your fruit trees as well as maybe your ornamentals. And we're talking maybe like uh, anywhere from late January to very early March. Um, that would be a good time to purchase your fruit trees and plant them. You can certainly do it now, and it would not be a bad time to do it. The only thing I think you might have an issue with <coughs> would be availability. A lot of the um, places that are growing the fruit trees are, are sort of you know, in the process of, of rooting the cuttings now, or you know, it might be a, a two- or three-year-old tree that you're purchasing, but they may not be ready for sale yet. So that would be the biggest key is availability. But you know, if you could find fruit trees, planting them in the fall, not a bad, not a bad idea at all but you certainly have a window between now and I would say the first part of March to get those things in the ground. Is there a difference in how we treat our plant and how we put it into the ground if it has been balled and burlapped as opposed to being grown in a container? That's a good question. And let me just explain, you know, balled and burlap, if you're not familiar with that, B&B, um, there's actually two types out there. That basically is a, a tree or shrub, usually a large shrub, that was grown in the ground. It was in no type of plastic container. It is dug out mechanically normally with a big, what they call a tree spade. It runs on the back of a tractor or maybe a, uh, like a, a small bobcat type thing. It pulls that plant up and then it wraps it. Many times that wrapping is what we call burlap. It's that material that you sometimes see potatoes, you know, stored in. Uh, it's a very, um, it, it's a permeable material where air and moisture can get through it. It is a biodegradable material, so so that is something um, that would kind of one one type of burlap. There's another type called grower bags, and these are actually plastic type. They look a little bit like burlap, but they're more made out of plastic, and and they are normally attached to the tree at planting time, and it roots out in the field in that plastic bag. If you happen to buy a plant that has that, you want to remove that completely before planting time. Uh, because that is something that is not going to biodegrade. The bags and burlap, you can actually just cut off, make sure you cut off where it's attached around the tree. Usually there's a string or something like that. Make sure you take that off and then pull the burlap back a little bit off the top of the root ball, but you don't have to remove it. But if you have sort of a kind of a shiny, shellac, meshy feeling type thing, um, that's probably a grower bag. You want to remove that completely. A Container-grown plant is one that's usually grown in a plastic container. could be other type, but usually plastic. It has a sort of ready-to-go root system right in there. The advantage is that it's being watered, and um, even though burlap as well, but, but, but the container-type plant it is a little bit more structured root system that's a little bit easier on planting. So you can essentially, even though fall is the best time, you could plant a container-grown ornamental any time of the year in Georgia. Certainly fall or maybe very early spring would be better than summer. It'd be real stressful. But you do have a pretty good root system established, so it gives you a little leeway. 
a bagged and burlapped plant is going to be stressed when it comes out of the ground. I would only recommend bagged and burlap planting this time of the year in fall all the way through very early spring, like maybe January. Um, you try to do one in late spring or summer, it's probably going to stress out and you will lose it. That's interesting because I would have thought that the bagged and burlap, you know, being a, a longer standing practice would have been uh, the, the safer route. And it turns out it, it's just the opposite. Are there, for you going back to the vegetable garden for the fall, do you plant any sort of cover crop or a distraction crop for the pests, or is that more something that's limited to spring and summer vegetables? Um, hit, hit me with that question one more time. I didn't, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, when it comes, do you plant any sort of cover crop or distraction crop for your fall vegetables like you do with your summer and spring vegetables? Okay, yeah, yeah. We had talked about before, um, you know, planting what we call trap crops. Where we, there, I couldn't kind of, think of the term. Yeah, okay, that's why I was, I was having to have you repeat that. Yeah, trap crop is something that you're sort of planting when you know you're going to have insect invasion, but you plant something that's a little bit more attractive to them than what you're actually trying to harvest. In the, in the summertime, you know, we plant trap crops of sunflowers, to some extent buckwheat, sorghum, which is kind of a grain, kind of similar, the plant looks similar to corn, but it's got a top on it similar, you know, to a, uh, to a wheat kind of. And we use that to kind of bring bad insects away from our vegetables, and then we can spray that versus the vegetables. In the wintertime, the insects are just very more specific for the vegetables that they're going to hit, you know, on our, on our, our fall-type vegetables, so I do not plant a trap crop. But I certainly do plant plenty of cover crop. I'm not normally planting the entire garden in, in winter vegetables, so a lot of it that's going to be left idle, I will till up and plant my winter cover crop. And a winter cover crop is something like wheat and clover or maybe rye and clover, something that's got a little combination. It's going to hold the soil so it keeps it from eroding. It's going to release nutrients into the soil when it's tilled in in the spring, and it just is a uh, kind of a beneficial way to build, if you will, organic matter as that stuff com compose, uh, you know, decomposes and breaks down in the springtime. So that's kind of what I focus on are cover crops more in the wintertime, you know, other than the trap crops. When it comes to sorghum, do you use that as a, a part of your garden as a food stuff and not just a trap crop? Um. One more time on that question. Do you use the sorghum that you might plant as a trap crop? Do you or a cover crop? Do you plant? Do you use it as oh, okay. a food stuff in addition to being a trap crop, or do you use it just exclusively as a distraction for insects? It is just a distraction for insects. Um, the, the sorghum, although you know it actually is used in certain parts of the country, it's actually um, harvested for oil and other type things. In some countries. It's actually used as a food product, and I guess they make it almost like a wheat and make a, a bread type out of you it. You can pop I, it like popcorn. Pop it like popcorn, but I have never, I have never tried to eat it. Quite frankly, um, I let it go to seed head. Um, that which I plant outside of my protected garden, um, a lot of times it really brings in wildlife because the deer will eat the seed heads, birds will go after it. So a lot of, a lot of people are feasting on it besides the insects. But no, to answer your question, I guess it could be utilized, but I, I've never actually tried to use it you know, per se, as a food product. My grandmother always had sorghum syrup, which I never tried, but she always had it. Ah, so. yes. Well, now now you mention that, and, and that is 
something I do enjoy. I love sorghum syrup. Uh, I've also had cane syrup, but I've never made it. Uh, my father-in-law used to make both those, and he was real talented in being able to do that. But I'll certainly purchase it and put it on a biscuit all day long. So I guess I do eat the sorghum in, in the sense of syrup, but I've never made it myself. Well, I should have asked this question earlier. You, the last time you were on, we discussed, you know, the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. You know, pumpkins and Halloween, or pumpkins are festive, and we've already missed the boat on the planting of pumpkins. But for the Christmas season, the things that you mentioned earlier, hollies or perhaps mistletoe, have we missed the boat on that for this year? I would say you've missed the boat on planting it, but you certainly haven't missed the boat if you already have it either available in your yard or you have access to it. A lot of the hollies we talked about are going to be pretty fruitful. Um, in, in hollies, you have both male and female, in a lot of cases, plants. The female-type hollies will be the ones that are going to be the berry producers. And a lot of times, folks will take clippings of not only the green foliage, but a cluster of the red. My wife does it all the time around here and uses it almost as like a table dressing, you know, kind of a ornamental type um thing in the house certainly some of the um trying to think of the, the nandinas that you see the common one is nandina domestica not the best plant in the world but there's also some of these um dwarf nandinas they get a real purple foliage as it starts to cool off and they can make attractive um additions i was at a farm doing a pro we actually had an organic program on monday and at this farm they produce lots of vegetables but they also sell all kinds of materials to florists. And I was almost blown away when I saw all these little baskets of stuff that she was selling to the florist for doing flower arrangements. And it included everything from stems of crepe myrtle, so we know crepe myrtle is an ornamental. Of course, the, the blooms are pretty much gone. They've got the seed pods now. But she had crepe myrtle stems in there. She had, which is a plant we hate, privet, which is a very invasive plant, but they were taking cuttings of privet, which will be used in flower arrangements. Uh, you name it, it was probably in there. Forsythia, again, another plant we don't normally think of being in a flower arrangement. It's kind of non-colorful except early in the spring when it puts out the little yellow bell flowers. So there are many different ways that you can probably take what you have existing in the landscape right now and utilize it for, for types of flower arrangements or table ornaments. How important is spacing? Is there a difference between summer and, and spring and summer gardens as opposed to fall and winter gardens in terms of spacing? Or are we dealing pretty close to the same parameters? Well, you know, if we're, if we're talking ornamentals, um, we're always going to space ornamental plants. And this doesn't, this doesn't occur very uh, often, unfortunately, but we should always be spacing our ornamental plants based on maturity. How big will that tree, that ornamental shrub, that perennial, how big will it be when it matures, gets to its fullmost size? That's how we should be spacing things in the landscape. And oftentimes, even commercial landscapes, you'll see where they overdo it, they overplant. Uh, you only have to ride up, you know, into Atlanta, and a lot of it's been taken out because it's died, but all the, when we had the Olympics, you know, they had all that landscape coming down the sides of the uh, corridors and the, the highways, and it was completely overplanted and eventually it grew into each other. So you really need to use either the extension service um, publications we have to look up the size of how big something gets, and that will tell you basically, or that should give you the idea of spacing. So in other words, if a plant, let me take an example, 
something, uh, a real popular plant is a dwarf yopon holly. A lot of them out there. It looks like little puffballs in the landscape. People will put those on one and two and three foot centers, not realizing that that plant can get four or five feet wide. So that being said, I would put them no closer than four or five feet because those sides are going to come and touch each other. And so the key is trying to not keep things growing into each other. That can lead to more insects, more disease. So the spacing on plants, whether it be in the winter or spring or any time of the year, is really not based on anything to do with temperature. It's based on the maturity of that individual plant. And so you have to know how big is this going to get width-wise and tall-wise so that this will last in the landscape for a long period of time. Well, to, to back up your example there, you told me several months ago that you had had to go to Trilet Studios in Fayette County where you know the Hollywood productions are made, and I had to go, and you had mentioned that they had some spacing issues with some of their ornamentals. Turns out right. you were absolutely right. I had to be out there last week for a freelance project, and uh, I, if you had not mentioned it, I would not have noticed. But there is... <laughs> some serious competition for resources that is stunting the development of some of those plants. Right. And, and I think, you know, again, I don't, I don't know any of the residents there, but what happens is you get a lot of resident influence on what they plant. So I know, I know the guys that maintain all the landscape out there, but they're not like, you know, given free will to plant whatever they want. The residents get to say, hey, you know, I want a peach tree, I want a pecan tree. You know, with that, throw me in five knockout roses, this and that, and, you know, they're the ones paying the money, so it's like, hey, we're going to find a way to squeeze this in here. Certainly for a year or two, maybe it works. Everything starts out pretty benign and small. You fast forward a couple of years when those things start to do what they want to do, which is get wider and taller, and you have trouble. So, yeah, anytime we have, you know, I guess you could say um, a lack of knowledge base on how something's actually going to grow and what conditions it needs to grow in, you're going to eventually have problems. I guess, for me, that's job security. <laughs> that's a good way to look at it. But now that our nights are getting longer, days shorter, are there plants in the fall ornamental or in the fall vegetable garden that prefer a little more shade to, as opposed to direct sunlight? Yeah, you know, from the, from the vegetable standpoint, I'm going to just answer that with a, with a simple no. Anything that I'm aware of along the vegetable line is always going to want to have as much sunlight as it can get. And like you said, we have a little bit less sunlight in the wintertime than we do in the summertime. So certainly optimizing as much sun as you can get in the winter, at least six or seven hours, um, would be beneficial to vegetable plants. As far as ornamentals go, again, this gets back to the individual plant and having a little bit of knowledge base on how it grows. There are some plants that absolutely want to be out in the sunlight. You know, I mentioned one a second ago, knockout roses, anything in the rose family. Certainly a lot of the hollies uh, we talked about, they want to have full sun. They don't really want to have a lot of shade because it's going to make them stretch out, sometimes really grow poorly. On the other side of the equation, we have plants that would really much prefer to get at least some afternoon shading. The azaleas we talked about. Certainly if you want to try to squeeze in a rhododendron, hydrangea, all of those, all those are going to benefit with some shade. And so it really, it boils down to kind of knowing what the plant is. And so if you are unfamiliar with, A, how big a plant gets, and B, where it should be sited. And by sited we mean, hey, should it be in full sun? 
should it be in soils that are a little on the wet side or dry side? You need to get that information before you make that purchase because you want that purchase to be long-term, to last for the duration of hopefully, you know, when you live in that house and, and, and longer. And so you want to make sure you've got the information up front to plan that. And then, of course, it gets back to, am I going to space this properly where it's not in competition with others? So it comes down to, on the ornamental side to a plant-by-plant -plant basis. There are a few plants. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of something like a loripetalum. Most people know it as it's got kind of a purplish-type um, foliage to it, depending on the variety, and also puts out a little firecracker-looking um, pinkish bloom. That one can tolerate either shade or sun. So there are some that will kind of are able to kind of withstand both conditions. But you just have to know the plants individually. Now that's another interesting concept there. Now when it comes to fertilization, does the we had an awful lot of rain so far this month, and typically October is the driest month in our calendar. Does that affect? Does all this moisture affect how much fertilizer we want to use if we're going to plant shrubs or ornamentals? Right. So, um, you know, a lot of people get into the, the maybe the misconception that, you know, I'm planting all my ornamentals, and Bob just said, you know, get the ornamentals out in the fall because they're going to continue to grow. Um, yeah, I mentioned that the root systems are going to continue to grow. The top sort of shut down. Right. With that being said, and I'll give you a couple of exceptions, but when it comes to ornamentals, um, your key is to get them planted properly in the fall to make sure they have moisture when they need it, particularly if it's dry when you plant it. You want to probably water those things every day for the first week because they were being watered at the nursery or when they were in the ground. Kind of acclimate them and then sort of taper off on the water to maybe every couple of days until you feel like, hey, this is starting to establish. Maybe I only need to water it once a week or when it needs it. On the side of fertility, I would hold off putting any fertilizer out on new planted ornamentals this fall. Let's completely hold off because we don't want to even attempt to push out new growth as we're getting into the cooler temperatures. We're going to wait now until the, the plant begins to respond and flush out in the springtime. In Georgia, that you know, could be anywhere between early to mid to late March. And when you see it start to putting out new growth, that would be the time to fertilize new ornamentals in the landscape. The exception would be if you're using some of the winter annuals. We mentioned pansies and snapdragons and mums. Those are kind of thriving in the cool temperatures. Certainly they wouldn't mind a little bit of fertility at planting time and maybe once a month throughout their growing season. So they're a little bit of an exception. Are the pollinators different in the fall than they are in the spring and summer? And if so, how do we attract the pollinators that we need to help our all ornamentals and gardens flourish. Right. You know, the pollinators are certainly different. Um, I think, you know, you're a little bit more limited on the color that you can plant. Um, you know, we talked about pollination issues in the summer are usually a result, usually of people spraying incorrectly with, with insecticides. Sometimes it's a bad weather scenario where they're not flying. But there are certainly plenty of pollinators around in the warm temperature. In the cool season, fortunately, they're not quite as vital when it comes to the vegetables. A lot of our vegetables that we eat are, we're basically eating the, the greens, you know, the lettuce, the collards, um, the turnips, and we're not really worried about the production of the flower. When you think about tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers, we're actually eating the female flower that's, you know, going to develop into what we call the oval or the female part, develops into the fruit. 
when it comes to the greens and, and the leafy type stuff and Swiss chard and things like that, we're actually eating the leafy part of the plant. So it's not the reproductive part. Okay, now the exception, certainly when we have broccoli and um, Brussels sprouts, okay, we're still, we're even though that is the beginning of the flower stage, we don't really want it to pollinate because once it pollinates, that's not going to be a very edible vegetable anymore. It's going to become bitter. So in most cases in the winter garden, um, pollination is not tremendously important. And, yeah, there's still some pollinators out there, from maybe, and maybe they're going to get attracted to some of the plants we mentioned um, that you might plant. But it's just not a huge critical factor like it is in the spring or summer. I hope that made sense. <laughs> well, you just you bring up another keyword. You're just hitting all the keywords today, and the right. word now is edible. And I did not notice this. I, I saw that this was going to be a, a point of, of conversation, and I never noticed it until I saw this question. But are the ornamental kales and cabbages that we see sold in the stores, are they edible? I mean, my, my guess is no. Okay. Yeah, well, actually... They are in the cabbage family, lettuce family, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, yes, the, the, actually the answer is yes, they are edible. Um, I have pinched off a leaf or two and, I, and, and, and chewed on it, and I can't say it's the most tasty thing in the world, but they are a, if you will, a hybridization of our edible um, cousins, be it, you know, edible kale, um, cabbage. We think of the big head of cabbage or Chinese cabbage. So, yes, they actually are edible. Um, you know, in the summer we grow sweet potatoes in the summer flower beds we actually grow ornamental sweet potatoes there's one called blackie a real dark colored one there's one called marguerite which is kind of i think a chartreuse color well they actually develop very small little sweet potatoes in your flower bed and yes they are edible now being edible and being platable and tasty are two different things so they normally would not be grown for you know eating production but that being said they certainly could be eaten. It's not going to kill you. Well, I was remiss for not asking this sooner, but when we talked about the maturation of plants and how to properly space them when we want to plant, is this information available on the UGA website? Yes, it is, um, depending on what we're talking about. Um, certainly for the major um, lion's share of ornamentals, um, I would recommend folks go to, you know, there's probably a website name, but I, I just usually just tell people to Google UGA extension publications and when they do that you know you'll see go to the little search engine box that's kind of a little bit maybe about a third of the way down next to the magnifying glass there you go next to the magnifying glass and click in um I would put in ornamentals um in George or something like that and you can be even you can be oddly specific and the search engine will pick it up it's going to list normally a number of publications we do have one that's called plant, if you want to be more specific, there's one called Plant Materials for Georgia. Plant Materials for Georgia is a fairly extensive publication. I know I've worked on it myself over years, probably several co-authors in there. Um, it lists the plants. It lists where they like to be planted. Importantly, how big they get. Um, and, and also things like, hey, this one does really well in wet soils. This one needs dry soils type things. So that's a real helpful um, and we have a number of publications on selecting annuals, selecting perennials. There's just, you know, everything you could dream of, including pruning ornamentals, vegetables, fruits. Another resource book I might throw out there, 
and it's not like it would be, you know, something you'd want to read at night going to bed. Well, maybe it would put you to sleep, but um, we do have a, it's, it's called the, the, the Landscape Book of Woody Ornamentals. And it is one by a retired professor we have had in our department, Michael Durr. And Michael's sort of famous for all his ornamental knowledge. He goes across the country giving talks. But it's sort of like the Bible of ornamentals. And and he does have some companion books that have got color and stuff, so you can kind of look that up online. You won't find it on our website, but Michael Durr, I think it's um, D-I-R-R, Manual of Woody Ornamentals. It is a just Bible of all the information on all the ornamentals that basically exist, and not just in our state, but pretty much in the world. And I use that book oftentimes when somebody says, hey, you know, I got this plant, how do I propagate it? Or is this a good plant to put in, you know, a real sunny area? And we don't have it in our publications. It's, it's a really helpful book, and it'll tell you how big the plant gets, what type of flower it puts out, how to reproduce it. And so that's just something I throw out there. It's, it's certainly not a cheap book, but it might be something, you know, that, you know, something was really into this landscaping, that would be one you'd want to have in your library. When it comes to our ornamental beds, do we have to worry so much about weeding that, like we do in other times of the year? Weeds are still going to be with us in the in the uh, fall and the winter. They change out somewhat that primarily the annual weeds from the summertime that we've been battling are going to start to fizzle out. And then all of a sudden, you know, not, not to leave us alone for the winter, we get the, the winter annual weeds that are going to come up. And one that really comes to mind, everyone seems to see, is henbit. Uh, henbit is the one that, it puts out the little purple flowers. It's got a square stem. It gets its name because the leaf actually looks sort of like a, like a, a chicken, hen, chicken hen fan tail or whatever. Um, and that is a very common, and there's a bunch more that come out. Uh, certainly cud weed and other type winter weeds. So, yeah, we are going to have to have weed control in the, in the home vegetable garden and home ornamental garden. But I would say the weed control is probably a little bit easier in the wintertime because we don't have quite the onset of weeds like we do in the summertime. But still, for for non-organic operations, using a pre-emergent herbicide, a proper one, would maybe be a good way to help prevent some of these weeds from coming up, whether it be in your lawn, your landscape, your your winter garden. Using mulch to try to block out, um, you know, these weeds before they come up is an excellent idea. In our gardens, oftentimes we use sort of a mesh-type permeable weed fabric that we grow on or, or grow through, uh, and it keeps the weeds kind of blocked out and lets the vegetables thrive. So you do want to pay attention to the weeds. Uh, certainly you're not going to have maybe the extent that you had in the summertime, but you don't want to let them get out of hand either. Okay, I'm going to hit you with a surprise question just because we're just about out of time, but I do have an interesting question for you, at least I think it is. The holiday season is coming up, Christmas, gift-giving, and how great, you know, Christmas season is. What is the best Christmas gift for gardening you have ever been given? Let's see. Um, You know, if folks don't have one, and this will be more on the expensive side, um, even if they've got a small vegetable garden, small ornamental garden, um, and I've got all different sizes, but at the end of the day, for a small gardener's, you know, garden type thing, um, I think having some type of a motorized power tiller would be that a wonderful gift. And it doesn't have to be a big jumbo tiller, but we're talking about something like people are familiar with the mantis tiller. There's also um, I've got one made by Still, which is like this people do the chainsaws. 
Um, they're pricey. They're, you know, you're looking at anywhere from about three to four hundred dollars. But that is a wonderful gift for doing the weeding we talked about, preparing small beds, um, and you can get some of them. They can exchange and get different attachments for them. That's just something we use all the time. The little mini tillers. Um, kind of going down the line, price-wise, it never hurts. Every year I get garden gloves. I just love good leather garden gloves. I, I, I tend to kind of, for whatever reason, either lose one, you know, kind of like the socks in the dryer type thing, and I'm left with one right glove or one left glove. But I always get good leather gloves. Um, I think that's not a bad thing to have. A push planter for the vegetable garden. If you've never used a push planter before and you plant sort of a, a fairly sized garden, you know, it, it's going to make planting kind of tenacious stuff like sweet corn, okra, that type of stuff, so much easier. Basically, you have the garden tilled up, ready to go. You put the seed in this thing, and you just push it down the row as fast as you can walk, and it puts the seed in at the proper spacing depth, closes it up, and you're good to go. It, it'll speed you up 100 times for, for kind of, you know, getting your vegetable planted. And then certainly, you know, there's always some good garden books out there that folks can look for. Uh, we mentioned the Michael Durr one. That one will set you back a few dollars, but it's certainly a uh, a good one, and I'm sure there's others out there. Well, Bob, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Uh, have a safe trip, and uh, do not stay too terribly long because, you know, <laughs> as the gardening conditions and the weather changes and we get into full standard time, the, you know, the gardening rules will change somewhat. So we need to have you back on just as soon as possible. But do have a safe trip, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you, sir. I look forward to being back on again soon. Thank you, sir.